0: Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden um, with the Annie Pratt Free Library, and welcome to another edition of our Talking About Race lecture series. And I must tell you, one of the best things that could ever happen when you're having a discussion about race, and we, for three years now, we partnered with the um, Open Society Institute Baltimore to create this series, and we wanted to create a dynamic and no-holds-barred conversation on race in America and, of course, in Baltimore, and that we were hoping that the conversations would start at the library and then continue to people's living rooms, dining rooms, conference halls, and maybe even classrooms. And I think having to move tonight's talk and come up to the Wheeler Auditorium on a Tuesday night, proves that we're getting successful. So thank you all. <laughs> and the reason why you're here is because we are very honored to have with us the author of High Schools, Race, and America's Future. He's a distinguished professor from the University of Massachusetts, Mr. Lawrence Bloom. Oh, you can, you can clap. can <laughs> on. Well, He's coming up, Mr. Blum. Uh, Some of you may know that uh, Mr. Blum and his family are true friends of this library. His mother, I have to say, and we have it right here on this paper, and I'm not exaggerating, is called The Amazing Lois Feinblatt. She's still working as a counselor, and she does it with stamina and grace, and we are all very pleased that she um, is participating and has been a part of the Pratt family for more than 25 years. Um, Our author events like tonight could not be possible without the support um, from donors like many of you, and we thank you very much. Now, if you haven't had a chance in just a short plug, our newsletter, Compass, lists some of the upcoming programs. Chris Hayes is coming, uh, Terry McMillan, and Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. So we hope you will join us again. As I mentioned earlier, the Open Society Institute Baltimore is our partner, and to introduce our special guest tonight is the director, Ms. Diana Morris.
1: Well, thanks, Carla. It's just a delight always to partner with the Pratt, and also to have so many people here with us tonight. So thank you so much for being here, including some of our wonderful Open Society Institute board members. So thank you all for being here too. Um, this has been a really wonderful series, and you know we are actually in uh, approaching year number five in January, so this is really a tribute to the interest and the spirit of really trying to be open here in Baltimore, and we really appreciate it because we actually take our, our lead from you. This series has been an opportunity to really look at race from a number of different perspectives and to really think about how it affects us in our daily lives. And to also really acknowledge how difficult it sometimes is to talk about race. And to think with others who come to visit us, like Larry tonight, about how we could actually talk about it honestly. Uh, and, and and have basically the discomfort that might ar- arise with that conversation, but to really realize that that's what it's gonna take for our community to come together. Um, the issue of race is one that we think a lot about at the Open Society because it's really the lens with which we approach all of our work. Uh, We're really focused on increasing opportunity here, increasing justice. And we know that for people here, especially people living in poverty, who either now or in the past have experienced discrimination, that it's really important for us uh, to understand the dynamics of race and to begin to address them. Um, With with everything we do, and I think many of you are familiar that we focus particularly on three areas, the overuse of incarceration um, and the need to look at alternatives to incarceration. Uh, we are working hard to make sure that children are engaged in school, achieving, and graduating. And we're also concerned with um, drug addiction treatment, making sure it's readily available to everybody regardless of, of income. And of course, we have our wonderful community fellows. And in all of this work, race is a really important issue. Um, so this series is helping us just as I hope it's really helping other parts of the community to think through what your roles are and and what will actually make your work have more uh, value. Tonight we're gonna hear from Larry Blum, who is gonna discuss why it's important for students to talk about race, um, including in the classroom. And um, I think as he'll tell us that this is an issue that we really should not avoid and that we really need to take the time to understand. Uh, His new book is High Schools, Race and America's Future, what students can teach us about morality diversity and community and in it he discusses a high school course that he taught uh, for a number of years on race and racism that class was very diverse uh, racially ethnically and economically And he documents in it the the revelations, um, as well as the discomfort that happened in the middle of those conversations, including uh, starting at the outset of really acknowledging uh, what it is to be a white person, um, and that that's not the baseline. Um, So his conclusion, and I know we'll hear it directly uh, from Larry Blum himself, is that it may be awkward, but it's really an important, necessary conversation for us all to have. Um, In addition to being the Distinguished Professor of Liberal Arts and Education and Professor of Philosophy um, at UMass Boston, uh, he's also been a visiting professor at UCLA and Stanford and Teachers College at Columbia. Um, Of course, we have the most recent book, but in addition, uh, 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 Larry Blum has written four other books, including I'm Not a Racist But... The Moral Quandary of Race, and that was selected the best book of the year in social philosophy by the North American Society for Social Philosophy, Friendship, Altruism, and Morality. And he's also co-authored Moral Perception and Particularity and A Truer Liberty. So uh, it's really a thrill to have uh, Larry here, uh, both in his own right, but also because it's just great, as everyone always says, to have uh, another part of Lois Feinblatt's family with us. So welcome, Larry.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks for coming. <coughs> I'm, I'm fighting a cold, but I'll, I'll do my best. Um, I'm very grateful to the Open Society Institute and the Enoch Pratt Free Library for including me in this this wonderful series. I don't actually think I've been in this library since I left Baltimore when I graduated from high school, but the library always had sort of a magical quality for me and it's wonderful to be back in this particular space. (coughs) You know, Diana, I realize that I'm not sure how long I'm supposed to speak for. It's a funny time to be clarifying that perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) But could you give me a... You can
1: speak for half an hour, and then we can have questions, whatever you... Or, or, or a bit longer. It's really
2: up to you. Okay. All right. <laughs> Great. So I'll, I will be talking about uh, race and education, and just to put my cards on the table, I'm very much a, a proud product of the Baltimore public school system. I went to Falstaff Road Elementary School, to, ga- <laughs> to, g- <laughs> to, g- <laughs> to Garrison Junior High and then to, to city, or city, city forever, sing the whole song. (laughs) So in, in 2009, Eric Holder, the Attorney General, said that Americans didn't, don't talk to each other about race very well. He got a lot of grief for saying it, thereby proving that what he said was true. and uh, what he what he didn't say is that one of the reasons that people don't talk about race is that they actually don't know as much about it as they as they should. They're just not as informed about racial matters. <clears throat> so I'm going to describe uh, a course that I taught at my own local high school in, in Cambridge Massachusetts a school that my three children uh, attended and graduated from. <clears throat> The school itself is extremely diverse, as Diana mentioned, uh, and both economically, there's about a 47% um, kind of free and reduced lunch population there. There's an extraordinary ethnic and linguistic diversity. When I taught there, there were 64 home languages, I'm sure there are more now actually. Um, and they're, you know, members of every racial group, and no racial group is a majority, so it's a kind of interesting dynamic. There They're a group of schools with similar demographics around the country, many of, or some of whom, are organized in a network called the Minority Student Achievement Network that talks about common problems facing uh, schools of this kind. So the class, I taught a class on race and racism. I kind of fell into into doing it. I won't, I won't go into the details of that. But the class that I had reflected the mix of students in, in the school. I worked with guidance counselors to help me have a class usually around 20 students, a little more or less in, in the different years that I taught it. that So, so I had every racial group represented. I wanted to have a class where, I wanted to have a class that had every racial group so that the um, challenge of talking to one another across this racial divide would be sort of shared among all the different groups and and, uh, be a challenge to to all the different groups. At the same time, I also wanted to make sure that the majority of my students were black and Latino. because. it's kind of well known fact and unfortunate fact on a national level that black and latino students are not given as challenging curricula and this is part of the reason for the uh, kind of so called achievement gap i didn't want to play into that and I, and also at the school um, at the school that i taught most of the advanced classes were primarily white and I didn't want to just replicate that same dynamic. I wanted my class to have a different feel to it so even though <clears throat> even though some of my black and latino students had taken an occasional AP class advanced placement class or an honors class, they had never been in a majority uh, in in those classes and they've never they'd never had really a sort of critical mass of them in the classes <coughs> that they had taken before um, and finally. <coughs> in terms of the class composition, I was not looking for the highest flying students. I didn't want students who were kind of already headed for the Ivy League or other selective colleges. I wanted students who were, as I put it in in the kind of publicity for the course, reaching for college, students who aspired to go to college but didn't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily absolutely assumed that they would be able to or would would actually go to college. So my course was billed as a kind of taste of college taught by this college professor. And I was really looking for students like the kind of students who then come to UMass Boston rather than the kind of students who go to to Ivy League schools. Since I couldn't completely control who was in the class, I didn't always get the exact mix that I want. I didn't. I would have liked to have more students of the kind of UMass Boston type, but I had a very a very wide range, and I would say the the middle of the class was that UMass Boston type of of student. So I'm going to tell you some something about what the course was like. So as I say, the course was called Race Race and Racism, and it was it was very much an extremely rigorous and challenging, intellectually challenging course. It was built around um, the historical study of the origins of the idea of race in the West and especially in the United States and the sort of developments, the interactions with, with uh, European expansion and colonialism and the slavery of the slave trade and, and the kind of uh, dispossession of native peoples in, in the West. So, I went back to the fifteenth century, and I wanted the students to see to 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 see that race was a subject that you could study, like chemistry or English literature that it wasn 't only something that you had experiences about i mean it was something you had experiences about, but it was also something that where you learned things that you might very well not have known about before. Or maybe had some a more superficial exposure to some of these kinds of issues before. So I I wanted the course to be anchored in a sort of intellectual challenge, and for the students to be pushed to rise to that challenge, which they which they very much um, did. Um, I, I wanted the course to be historical because you can't really understand the present unless you understand the history and this is especially true of the idea of race if you just think about race in terms of what's going on now you can't really understand why do people live in the separate way that they do Um, you know changes in in living patterns and in schools school populations You, you have to understand all those things historically and of course the biggest issue why are there why are the racial disparities but why are disparities between different racial groups still so vast you can't understand that without understanding this history so I wanted my students to have the kind of grounding in that in that history but also the historical approach um, had another sort of benefit when you're dealing with uh, uh, an area that's so charged as the area of race Sometimes the fact that we were talking about what ha- happened in you know 1750 or 1650 or 1850 would sort of allow students to focus on something that was quite distant from their own experience, but then they could sort of bring their bring in their experiences on the on the, on the edges of those other issues, and when we had uh, conversations. So every week I had one day, so I taught four four or five days a week, one day I would have sort of contemporary material and the other days were all historical, but the contemporary material was then kind of connected to the historical, um, to the historical material and it sort of meant that the experiential issues that came out and I wanted wanted the students to feel comfortable bringing in their racialized um, experiences I think it made it easier to to wade through that particular minefield that, that the historical approach made that easier. Another aspect of the course was that I was constantly talking about moral questions So my, my background is in moral philosophy and we were always putting uh, moral questions to the historical study so for an, for an example when we were studying the origins of the slave trade, I asked them to think about an African who sold another African to a European slave trader and whether you could say that it was morally wrong for that African to to sell the other African. It was a fascinating conversation and I asked a similar question of, um, you know, American slave traders and slave owners kind of. in the context in both cases in which slavery was an accepted practice, it doesn't mean everyone thought it was good, but it was an accepted practice and should that affect whether you think something is right, the fact that it's accepted or was accepted back there or we can we stand here in 2000 and say that something that happened in 1750 is morally wrong. So I thought it was the the moral approach enriched the historical study because it meant that the students were kind of putting themselves back in time um and thinking about these issues from from the point of view of actors at at the time and but it was also part of what i saw as a moral development in relationship to race racial issues are inherently morally charged both on the larger social level of being issues of of injustice and inequality and also on the interpersonal level of how you treat other people and the way that race plays a role in the way one treats other people both the ways that race can get in get in the way be a barrier to treating somebody else with respect but also ways that a racial identity can sometimes be a positive resource for moral action or collective action of various kinds. Um, a- another element of the course was uh, a comparative element, so we looked at the development of race. <clears throat> So it was mostly focused on the US but we also paid attention to Latin America and the Caribbean and I wanted my students to understand that the idea of race is a kind of historically constructed one that therefore is sensitive to kind of local conditions. So you know a few of the students in the class had either Caribbean or Latin American origins and it's kind of well known that when immigrants come to the United States from those areas, they're often in a certain way baffled by the kind of racial layout in the United States and, and the logic of of the racial classification system in the U.S. because it's really different in Latin America. The, it's, the way race is understood is very different from, from the U.S. and I wanted the students to understand that the character of those differences and also that the reasons for those differences had to do with differing, different roles of uh, the colonizers and the slave uh, systems in those different different societies, so the comparative dimension was something that I constantly emphasize as well, and then finally i I thought of the um, course as a kind of exercise in basic racial literacy I, in a way this point that Eric Holder made sort of helped me to articulate that idea that is that there are certain basic things that I sort of feel like every American should know just like they should know certain you know things about the American presidency and certain things about you know the separation of powers and so on I feel like there's certain basic things that about the racial history of the United States, that everybody should graduate. Everybody who graduates high school should know about these kinds of things, and so I, I I saw this racial literacy partly as a kind of knowledge issue, kind of knowing these these basics. But in this particular area, I also saw the literacy partly in the development of of a kind of interpersonal capacity or a, you might say it's a civic capacity for engaging people of other racial groups in productive conversations about about race and i you know tried to through through class discussion help my students to develop the ability to listen to one another to pose questions to one another to to be able to engage one another about these very very charged issues and I, I see that as an important civic capacity that's in short supply in the, in the US and so finally I wanted the students to feel comfortable not only comfortable with Racial differences, and I, I do think—I um, mean, I was on a radio show today. One of the callers asked me about whether I thought younger people were more comfortable with racial difference with race than my generation or the generation in between, the younger generation and my generation. Depending on how you count it, there may be three such generations. <laughs> but um, I, I do think that there is um, among younger people uh, a, a greater a greater ease with racial differences but I think it's or anyway often it's quite superficial it's not necessarily grounded in a very deep understanding of what the racial issues are and um one of the callers today asked me about sort of racial humor and the use of racial stereotypes and humor and how people in his generation he was saying you know are are often tell jokes that involve racial stereotypes and you know that seems to me That seems to me problematic. I mean, there's a big difference between a kind of in-group use of humor, that is to say use of humor by members of the same group in which they put down their own group, but it's all within their group. You know, it can be blacks, it can be Jews, it can be Muslims. But it's very different when somebody, when the out-groups, so to speak, to use the psychological terminology, when members of another group say the same kind of joke about members of the group in question. Um, people might feel like, oh, that's perfectly fine, everybody's happy with that, but I'm, I'm slightly dubious about this. Um, so um, let me also just give you some idea of some of the kinds of assignments that I, I use to help students develop some of these uh, intellectual capacities and, and moral capacities as well. So we we read a fascinating slave narrative called The Story of Mary Prince. It was actually one of the first slave narratives written by a, a woman. She was uh, not in the in the U.S. but in the in the British Caribbean, and it's really it's a it's a wonderful book to use it for for a high school class. And I asked the students in the assignment on this um, on this book to talk about. Mary Prince's evolving um, moral understanding of the institution of slavery. Does she come to be someone who condemns slavery as an institution or is she only Condemning certain extreme practices that take place within slavery. And it's not a question that it has a simple answer, so it, it really has their, uh, you know, it, it really pulls for some complex thinking in a text that's very experiential. You know, I didn't just ask them also well, what happens to Mary and then what happens to her next. I asked them to sort of think about this higher level um, issue. So then a, a second very challenging. Uh, assignment that was, you know, very, very difficult was about the scientific critique of the idea of race. So I, I wanted my students to understand that race had had uh, arisen as a popular idea but it had been given a kind of legitimacy um, by the natural science of the period in the 18th and 19th centuries. And I wanted them to recognize that scientists today now uh, reject that scientific view, that is they think that that the idea of race does not have a scientific foundation. It still has an important social reality, but it doesn't have the scientific foundation that people had previously thought that it did have. And I think that scientific legitimacy is still, hasn't been purged from the idea of race. I think it's still sort of present in a lot of the ways that racial uh, language is used, and, in, including in sort of medical medical contexts. So I I asked students to give three arguments, three scientific arguments against the idea of of race from several different readings that we had. That was a very challenging assignment. Then I had an assignment that I called the racial empathy assignment. This was a very complex assignment that had several different pieces to it but a student had to find another student of a different race than them and have a preliminary interview with that student about that student's racial experience and views on racial issues and then the the interviewing interviewing student would come back and turn in a, a kind of a transcript of that interview to me and then I suggested follow up questions and then they had to go back to the student and and follow up and then they had to write a paper in the voice of the of the student they interviewed, so they had to sort of try to describe what the racial world looked like to this other student, and then they had to give their own sort of reflections on doing doing that project and how it had affected their own uh, their own ways of thinking. then another assignment I had was a kind of journal journal based assignment, and the the journals were sometimes targeted but most of the time they were completely open-ended so I thought it was important that I have some assignment that allowed students to just say whatever was on their mind. And it had to do with it had to have something to do with race, but it could be anything. They could comment on class material, but they didn't have to. So sometimes students would write about like interracial relationships they were having that their parents were having having trouble with. Or there was another student that I that I remember who was a, a a young black man, very very. A, a big kid. He was a big, dark-skinned kid, and he talked about the experience of going with a white friend of his to a local movie, uh, you know, movie place, and um, he had gone. He had tried to get a job at this at this movie place, and he had been told there weren't any jobs, and then his friend, this is where I said, I didn't remember it right, and then the friend went a few days later and was given the job that he was told didn't exist, and so the student wrote this in a questioning mode. He said, I'm not sure whether I was discriminated against. What do you think, Professor Blum, do you think I was discriminated against? So, it wasn't like he was absolutely sure, and he was, you know, he was kind of fighting back against it he was really trying to understand something like why should he be treated differently you know what i mean it was like the the hurt was very patent you know and and uh, i sort of had to deal with it i actually wrote a letter to the movie place and said you know i don't i don't know what your practices are but this student of mine described the following thing if that is true that does seem to be a grounds for thinking that you engaged in discrimination and so on, and then I told the student that I had done that so so the journals were places for students to vent about various things. I didn't grade them, of course, though they were required to to turn them in. so just to give you some idea about some of the assignments, um, then I, I guess kind of over the the four times that i that I taught this that I taught this class i sort of came to understand or think that there were certain guidelines that would help someone to teach a class like this and one very basic one is just to really care about each individual kid and I think that as a as a white teacher teaching um, students of color that's actually something that you can't just take for granted that is I don't think the students would necessarily take it for granted, and I think you have to really make an effort both to do it and to show the student that you do really are really concerned about them both as a person but also as a learner that you're that you care about their intellectual growth, but you also care about their their growth as a person. I think you have to be aware of the stereotypes that are out there in the society and the culture about the group that this student belongs to. So if you're, you know, teaching immigrant black students, there's, like, I had several students of Haitian uh, background, and um, generally it was their parents who were Haitian. And, you know, there's certain quite demeaning stereotypes of Haitians that are kind of out and about, and I think it's important for teachers to realize that the way stereotypes operate, they don't necessarily go straight through your conscious mind. They can affect the way you see uh, another person without your being aware of it, and so people sometimes say, oh, you know, I don't see kids race. I I don't care if a kid is black or or purple or green or something like that. I don't think that's a good way to think about the um, I don't think that's a good way to think about seeing each student as an individual because these stereotypes are going to get in the way, and unless you're aware that they are going to get in the way and that you have to do some work on yourself to try to get past those stereotypes with the particular kids, you're not going to be able to see them as as an individual. So I think this idea of, of seeing a kid as an individual is fine as an ideal, but it shouldn't be pitted against seeing a kid as a, as a racialized being, as a member of a racial and an ethnic group. Race and ethnicity are part of people's individuality. They're not an alternative to, to people's um, individuality. I think another, another little guideline is to sort of be aware of racial anxiety. Racial anxiety is not the same as like a real prejudice where you really look down on the other group but a racial anxiety is a discomfort with racial difference and often people aren't aware that they have it but um, it's quite pervasive I think and it's very important for teachers to ask themselves the question whether they are having racial anxiety and you know you could have it with regard to certain students who are in a given racial group and not other students it doesn't have to be a blanket kind of a thing so it it works in subtle ways this anxiety but it can really get in the way of your being able to really uh, give yourself fully to to an individual um, student and another thing that I really found over these years of teaching is just that these kids were said these incredibly fascinating things so like every class had something you know really interesting happened in the class and I think that the teacher has to really be interested, show interest in what the kids are saying and what they're thinking and how they're processing things. And it has to be genuine. You can't just fake it. You know, the kids, they know if you're faking it. But you have to you have to um, be able to get past your racial anxiety, be able to get past the stereotypes so that you can really listen to these kids and see, you know, what interesting things they're saying and how you can uh, engage, engage with them. And so, you know, what I hope that I was able to create, and I got better at this over time, is a sense of kind of trust in the class that the, that the teacher cared about them, and the teacher was going to enforce kind um, sort of rules of engagement of of you know, mutual respect. And so sometimes we had conversa- explicit conversations about whether there should be a rule in the class like you can't say anything that hurts somebody else. So that sounds like a sensible rule, but the trouble is you can't implement it because people don't know what's going to hurt somebody until they've said it. So in, in one of the, <laughs> one of the post-mortem classes towards the end, um, I, I did this at the end of most of the classes, I asked them just to sort of reflect on the class and one black girl said, um, you might think something inside your own head and it seems perfectly fine when it's inside your own head, but when you put it out there to somebody, you see that it offends them and you just didn't realize that it was going to offend them when you were thinking about it. So obviously you can't have a rule that says um, you can't ever hurt or offend somebody, nobody would ever say you know what I mean, it would just restrict too much what people felt they were, were able to say in class. So, just having the conversation about what those rules of engagement were, I think was itself sort of helpful to have, you know, both sides where you really, the students really realize that you can say something hurtful to somebody and they need to learn from that and take that in, but at the same time you also have to create a space that allows people to say things that might, you know, Go against what what uh, some other student feels, or might even be hurtful to them. Um, okay, so to make a to sort of a, a general lesson, a takeaway that I that I want to um, put out as part of the current debate about education is that it seems to me that these kinds of classes where students are engaging across racial lines or schools which allow for that to happen you know you can have mixed schools where it doesn't happen but without the mix in the school it can't happen and so racial integration which used to be this noble ideal that has gotten sort of pushed to the side in in contemporary education reform and i think it's really a shame i think that students grow tremendously both on a personal level, that it enriches their own uh, ability to have relationships with students of of different races, it enriches their understanding of the world, um, to to hear the experience of of kids and the perspectives of, of kids of different races and ethnicities. It's also a very important civic project of the society to help train a Next generation of students who are capable of having these kinds of conversations who are knowledgeable about racial issues and able able to engage it also has a, a moral you know a moral dimension that I mentioned before that I emphasize very much that I think it's part of students' moral growth to be engaged with um, with racial, with racial issues. So I just wish that racial integration would sort of come back onto the screen a a little bit. I mean, the Supreme Court has made it kind of difficult in its 2007 uh, parents involved decision. They've not absolutely shut the door, but they've made it harder for districts to, integrated districts to create, um, to create integrated schools, but it's still possible to do it and you can have urban-suburban partnerships and there there, there are ways to do it. If people really believed in it, it could could definitely be done. So um, if I'm remembering my time frame right, I wanted to just read you one or two uh, just little snatches of conversation from the class just to give you a little sense of what it was like. so I, I was discussing. We 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 had a unit on the black abolitionist named David Walker, who's is not very well known, but he should be better known. He was a kind of fascinating figure, who died in 1830, and he was sort of active in the early. Um, Boston-based abolition movement and he wrote a a very searing critique of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson had written these quite explicitly racist things about black people in a in a book in 1783 and Walker wrote a a critique and and a a sort of a call to arms of, of slaves and black people basically to sort of rise up against their oppressors but one part of his thing was the importance of Refuting the views of people like Jefferson, so it, this book sort of lent itself very well to my class because I wanted students to be grappling with these ideas and to see that race was, among other things, a set of ideas that you could examine and and criticize. So, um, so Walker was also a very Christian. He was a, a Methodist, and. Uh, so we, I, was, I was kind of talking about that aspect, and then here's some students kind of leaped in. Hannah, and then I'll kind of just say the student's race. Hannah is white. Why would slaves and blacks be interested in Christianity or see any value in it when we saw that slave owners used Christianity to justify slavery? Christianity was such a powerful part of the system that oppressed them. Sherilyn, who's black. Jesus, too, was oppressed, as blacks were and God was on the side of oppressed people who would eventually triumph over their oppression with God's help. This is Walker's view. That's actually exactly accurate. Jacques was also black, black, but Haitian. Maybe the slaves saw something different in Christianity, something that the slave owners missed. Now, here's my commentary. It is good that the students can have an intelligent probing and critical discussion of religion like this. Hannah, whose religious affiliation I don't know, but one of her parents is Jewish and one isn't, raises a very important historical question, and it is one that could make some Christian students like Sherilyn defensive, but Sherilyn isn't defensive. Making use of Walker, she explains why slaves might have seen Christianity as a powerful supportive religion for them, and Jacques, whose religious views I don't know, but who is brought up Catholic, specifically addresses the historical issue of slave versus slave owner understandings of the same religion. On a more general level, it's good that the students see that different groups can get different messages from the same religion. This is an important insight about religion in relation to social groupings in society and is very much part of the way religion is deeply interwoven with race in American history. Both race and religion are enormously sensitive areas, yet without teaching about them students are deprived of vital understandings and opportunities for mutual enlightenment. Okay, so then in a, in a later discussion that also kind of bounced off of um, David David Walker, we we focused on Walker's um, using language like whites have kept blacks in, in bondage. Um, and given the times in which Walker was writing and his, his desire to rouse blacks to action against slavery, there's nothing problematic in, about this general statement about White people, ne- nevertheless, in the class, I had tried to sensitize the students to the need to be careful when generalizing about racial groups. So while reminding them of Walker's specific context, I asked them whether they think it is in some way unfair of Walker to talk about whites in this general way. Ebony, who's black. I don't think that he meant all white people when he said this. Christina, Slatina. Latina. Well, exactly which whites did he mean then? Sherilyn, the black student from before. Maybe all the white people Walker had met were actually racist, so it would be reasonable for him to generalize this way. I point out that since Walker was involved in the abolitionist movement in Boston, he was very aware of white people like William Lloyd Garrison, who devoted themselves to the cause of abolition. Clara, Latina. Walker just meant most white people which would make the statement true, since most white people in the US did support slavery, even if only a minority had slaves themselves. Shock, It's a black student from before. In a way, talking about white people in such a general way undercuts what Walker was arguing, because Walker is criticizing black people being seen as a group and being seen as inferior as a group, yet in a way, he is saying that white people as a group are deficient. The students are rising to the challenges, my commentary, of trying to situate what Walker said in his historical context while grappling with the issue of racial generalizations. They all see the issue that can be raised here and I think are all of them are more sensitized to the need to be careful when you make generalizations about large groups of people especially racial groups. Jacques's insight is particularly noteworthy coming from him. Jacques is acutely sensitive to the ways that blacks were indeed oppressed as a group and still suffer from group-based discrimination. Jacques is not rejecting talking about groups nor does he want to pull back from Walker's basic point that whites have oppressed blacks. But Jacques is seeing a danger in not being more careful about how all you want to make your generalizations about groups it matters whether you say all or most of a group it matters that you try to be more careful about saying that some members of the group are not encompassed by your generalization and jacques is seeing an analogy between black people as a group being seen as inferior and walker sometimes but not always seeing whites as hopelessly and unchangeably greedy and cruel um Okay, I'll give you one more here. Um, so, well, this is actually also connected to Walker, but um, raises interesting issues. So, um, so one of the things that Walker, so, so Thomas Jefferson says that black people's skin color is unf- unfortunate. And Walker is absolutely outraged by this statement. How could, how could Jefferson say something like that? So we're sort of talking about that. And Walk, so here's a quote from Walker. As though we are not as thankful to our God for making for having made us as it pleased himself, as they, that is the whites, are for having made them white. So I asked the class to discuss this passage, Jacques. So Walker is saying it's all right for us to have the skin color we have. Jean Paul a black student. Yeah, he says it's good that we have the skin color, that's the color that's right for us. I'm pleased that it's Jean-Paul who emphasized that Walker thinks black skin color is good given his previous remark about hair. So this was a remark where Jean-Paul talked about him having bad hair compared to people with straight hair, so he kind of put that racial thing out and there was a quite fascinating exchange where a bunch of especially black girls sort of jumped on him for saying saying that. and so I'm saying, I'm just kind of pleased this is now a later time that, that he's kind of um, t- taking Walker's affirmation of, of dark skin color and, and seeing it positively. Um, may, maybe Walker is helping him to rethink his, you know, his kind of internalized racism, you might call it. Jacques, it's like, I'm tall, and someone says, yeah, you're tall, that's just the way it is. Jacques sounds to me more resigned than proud about his tallness, maybe he's struggling to take on Walker's idea that all the characteristics God gave us are good but isn't there yet. He may only be able to say that the characteristics are okay, not that they're positively good. So then I say to the class, is Walker saying everyone should be proud of their skin color, whites included? So Clara, Latina. It should be the same, but pride in being white has a more negative connotation because it is always connected to being superior. Pima, who's a Asian student. White isn't seen as negative. If you look in the dictionary, the definitions of white are all positive, like lightness, sun, purity. Black is connected with dark, something you're afraid of. Adam is white. Whites have power, and white pride is connected with that. But still, saying you're proud to be white isn't necessarily supporting white superiority. Cheryl, and again. If a white person said, I'm proud of being white, my first reaction would be, are you saying you're better than me? Pima, the Asian student. Even if you should be able to say you are proud of being white, if somebody said that to me, I'd react against it. So um, this is just a fascinating conversation where where the historical... You know this historical text then can be used to help students think through a, a sort of a contemporary issue that raises you know quite sensitive issues about the skin color and the different values that are put on different shades of skin color and how those how those value systems are you know connected with with historical racism, but you know there's this kind of personal dimension to how people feel about how they look that. You know, isn't totally captured by a, a historical analysis, um, but it sort of in, in, they they inform each other. Um, so, okay, I think I I think I'll I'll stop now. i I could read you the whole book actually. <laughs> I've got I've every passage marked with lines, <laughs> but I think I'll stop and see if you all have any questions.
1: So uh, Larry's agreed to answer some questions that we might have. We have someone at the mic already. And um, unless it's really inconvenient for you to get to the mic, if you could go there for your question, that would be great. If it is convenient, um, I can repeat the question uh, so everyone can hear it. So, um, you know, as always, try to keep to a question more than to um, commentary. Thanks.
3: Is it my, Me? Yeah, I guess you're right. I think um, there isn't a true historical discussion of race without talking about the slave trade and how that influenced the development of capitalism. And one of the best books I've ever read on the slave trade and the development of world capitalism is Walter Rodney's How You Have Underdeveloped Africa. And my question is have you ever read the book?
2: how you have underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney? No, I'm, I'm familiar with the book and I'm familiar with with Rodney, but I haven't actually read that particular book. But in the in the course, I did very much um, emphasize slavery as part of an economic system rather than merely as a as a racially oppressive system. I wanted my students to understand that the origins of slavery were, you know, in a sense, an economic and uh, an economic decision that supported the, you know, the development of of capitalism at at the time. So, I I very much agree with the spirit of your, of your, of your question and um, I do think it's very important in teaching about race to constantly be aware of the very complex interactions between race and class differentiation as well. Yeah,
4: I, I hope nobody takes this the wrong way, okay? My opinion, you must be under 70, okay? Because I'm saying that because I was 71 this year in July. And the reason I'm saying all this about my age, because I came to Baltimore in 1951 And I went to public schools all my life. You say you went to city. I went to Eastern High School, okay? Right next door. (laughs) But anyway, so um, when I came to Baltimore, um, I came from Idaho. I was my mother's firstborn. My brother was my mother's lastborn, okay? I came to Baltimore. I was almost 10 years old. And I caught a culture shock because my brothers were in Idaho, okay, whatever, okay? So anyway... Always before the schools, you know, actually got integrated in Baltimore City, okay? So every day after school, I got beat up, and I could never figure out, you know, why I was getting beat up. So now I live in Charles Village, and there happened to be a man one day on the bus stop, which I live across the street from a bus stop, and I was telling the same story to this man who happened to be going to a seminar, Okay. So he says, well, why do you think the, 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 the kids beat you up? And now they're, now, they're before integration, okay, whatever that means to you, all white, all black, whatever, okay, it doesn't matter, but before integration. So anyway, so all the kids were beating me up every day for the whole year that I first came to Baltimore. So this man I happened to be talking to, he said, um, he says, why do you think they beat you up? And I came in on my math, I said, maybe they were jealous of me. I mean, my my mother had just recently got uh, divorced from my father. Okay, now let me tell you another story. This is about me again, right? (laughs) I lived in... in One story. Yes, ma'am. Just ask your question. Well, I'd like to know, besides, there's more in Baltimore, I believe, than racial prejudice. It's a lot of different kinds of prejudice in Baltimore and I knew I was going to get shut up, so.
2: I'll... I mean, I, you know, I, I haven't lived in Baltimore in a really, really long time and I, I can't really comment very much on sort of local conditions. I'm, I'm hoping to learn more about the, the racial history. I mean, I found, I went to my 50th city high school reunion and I discovered that Larry Gibson, who I understand is speaking in a series in the same, the same series a couple weeks down the road, that Larry Gibson was actually in my class at City. I, you know, I never knew him. I never, I never knew someone of obvious, incredible talent and ability. And, but at the same time, I understand that City was a very important integrated space in the late 50s when I, when I was a, when I was a student here.
3: I'm wondering, did you notice any change in your students' sense of agency, either their ability to interact with other students or their schoolwork or in other areas? Were you able to notice changes in that over the course of your teaching them? And if so, was it, were there some particularly interesting trends that you found?
2: Do you mean um, agency in specific regard to like racial incidents or? Or and, and like,
3: any of the any of the above did they <clears throat> develop a, a stronger sense of power or the ability to make sense of the world or to interact with it ah. as
2: a result of your class well I, I think i feel more confident in saying that they developed their ability to make sense of it the the class didn't have a a really strong action component. I mean, we would sometimes um, analyze racial incidents that the students would would bring up. There's a chapter in the book that deals with with an incident at a school dance. And in the conversations in class, the students would, you know, I, I... Pushed them to think about what they would do if they were in those situations, but I didn't actually have them be in those situations. Now, I, I guess the one place where they engaged in a, in a little bit of activity was the the final project in the in the course was um, students in groups of three inter mixed groups of three had to research an issue and then present it to the class and often they picked issues that were part of their own community either in the city of Cambridge their like students looked at at um, p- uh, police you know police treatment of, of blacks racial profiling and so on um, or issues in the school like kind of social so one group looked at social separation one group looked at academic segregation and in in sort of researching those issues and presenting them to the class, they were in a certain way kind of uh, you know pushing the envelope a little bit towards doing something. But I, you know, ideally there might be sort of like a, an actional or or I know what some people call a service learning component to the class that I didn't I didn't have when I taught it. I
4: um, appreciated
1: your talks, but uh, specifically I wanted to mention the term civic capacity, I really like that
4: concept and how you played it out. Was also um, very taken with the component about how to uh, decide whether to say something that might hurt somebody. One of
1: the reasons that it is so difficult, I think, for people to have conversations about race is we're afraid we might and we don't know. So we shut up, we stay, stay quiet. So I wondered, here's my question, did you or the students in your class come up with how to proceed when you have um, f- feared, when you feel you've hurt someone or when you have mm. felt hurt? What do you do next? Do you just stay silent or did you come up
4: with some way to talk about it?
2: Hmm. Oh, that's a great That's a great question. <clears throat> I actually, to be honest, don't remember a specific, I mean, I don't remember that as a specific issue, as you know, as you mentioned, we came right up to the brink of that question, but, um, I can't really remember students or myself coming up with specific issues. I guess the one the one place where it did come up, and this is reported in the book, is this 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 racial incident um that I that's discussed in that chapter has to do with a white couple at a Latino themed dance, in which most of the people there were Latino, and this white couple was Uh, made fun of for for having stiff white hips, quote-unquote stiff white hips. So, you know, this was a stereotype that the students in my class, some of them thought this was so everybody knows the stereotype that nobody could actually object to it, that it was just (laughs) a but but as the conversation proceeded they actually came to feel that especially if you racialize it if you make fun of the student in terms of a racial category that it's even that is even more problematic but there was one student in this conversation who said that if she had been at the dance she was Latina she would have gone up to the student i'm sorry she was, would have gone up to the couple and danced with him. and i thought that was a, a wonderful kind of civic um, imagining on her part that it would be a way of expressing solidarity with the white couple which is an implicit criticism of the people who are making fun of them but without necessarily um, calling them on it. So it, I, I thought that it had a civic dimension to it, that this was a student who was showing real insight into how you deal with the hurt that somebody might suffer from, from being ridiculed. Um, but no. Yeah.
5: Thank you very much for the insights. I thoroughly enjoyed your presentation. My question is it seems to me that you had created this this model and you wanted to test it. And if so, where are you now in this civic duty? that we ought to be talking about race at the high school level. Where are you now in this model in terms of what I would call uh, institutionalization curriculum for high school students Mm -hmm. to talk about this subject matter? Have you been able to create this model? Uh, has you has it been able to move forward? Where are you at in this institutionalization of yeah. this curriculum?
2: Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, I until I wrote this book, I didn't really have any organic relationship to the world of of k through twelve uh, education. I didn't have any way for to you know, to talk about my experiences. i There wouldn't be any reason for somebody to. Be interested in what i had to say so in a way i saw writing the book as uh, an attempt which i'm hoping will lead to you know in a way this discussion itself is an example of this to to be able to bring these ideas to a larger audience and to um you know hopefully find ways to engage with people in, in the world of, of high school. You know, my, my uh, grounding is, is primarily at the, at the university level, so I'm, I'm very much open to kind of partnerships and working with and doing professional development with high schools. The high school that I taught in is planning to use this book for professional development among their own staff. Maybe it'll spread from there, I don't know. Hi,
1: thank you so much for the for the lecture. Um, I have two questions. One, I'm really curious about the parents' reaction to this, like if you had either positive or negative reaction from the parental community. Um, and then also, um, you mentioned that the school was also um, socioeconomically diverse, and I'm just wondering if it, within the course you found that to be more of a um, kind of issue with the students, like kind of talking over through each other, as opposed to the racial issues and how that kind of played out.
2: I mean, I'll, I'll start with the second one. I think of it the economic issues and the racial issues more as a both end and a kind of complex interweaving of the two. So um, it's true that within all the different racial groups there was class diversity, but it's also true that on the average the white students were, you know, better, had more money than the, say the black and, well, the Latino students. Let me leave them out for a minute, but comparing the white and the black students. So, like, one example is that I I had one of my black students who was from an immigrant family, single single mother, and he aspired to go to college, but his mother, you know, wasn't able to give him any assistance in doing this, but he noticed that his classmates from middle class backgrounds were getting a certain kind of um, help at home that he wasn't able to get. And he was he was trying to like understand what was going on here. You know, he sort of saw something, it felt like a kind of injustice to him, but he wasn't um, he was really trying to work out the 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 this inequity that seemed to, that seemed to him to be going on. So that's an example of how the you know race and class kind of are, are very much bound up with each other on your um, on your first question about the parental thing, you know uh, in in high school parents, or at least in my experience, parents don't have as much of a of a role. so i you know I, I did hold uh, you know parent conference nights, but most parents didn't come to those conferences. And also, I didn't really I, I never went down the path of 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 making an effort to cross that boundary and really reach out. Reach out to the parents. So, I, I didn't really get very much feedback, and it wasn't. Um, I mean, one one parent one time thought that she she came to the uh, to the parent night. She was a black parent, and she was sort of critical of me because I didn't I didn't like know how to run the parent conference night right. Because you know I was this college professor. I didn't really know what you were supposed to do, and I, <laughs> I wasn't exactly part of the life of the school. An organic part of the life of the school, so I didn't always know like how things worked. I mean, she wasn't, you know, horribly critical of me, but I felt sort of a little bit mortified by not having had more things to show her about her daughter's work and stuff like that. But but anyway, I didn't really get um, I, I didn't get any really negative feedback from parents about what was going on in the class, for example, if that's Part of what the question was about.
4: Going to take
2: two more questions. I guess two
3: brief questions. I heard the interview on midday this afternoon, and I enjoyed it. Uh, there was one caller, and it, I just was sort of shocked at the uh, her question. It was an African American woman talking about her daughter was being put down for I guess voting Democratic. That Democrats were lazy, or uh, she went to I guess a conservative school, and this is a remark. So I guess one of the questions is, and it deals a little with class, but just our economic system, you know, uh, the effect of our economic system, and we have a great dispersal of rich and poor in our country right now, what impact is having on on this racial relations? And secondly, briefly, is uh, I found James Baldwin's uh, commentary uh, writings to be very, Interesting in terms of opening my mind up to the issue of issues of race, and I don't know whether you've used James Baldwin at all, any of his fiction so or whatever.
2: I, I'll take those questions. The opposite or also. I did um, for two years. I used the fire next time. Um, you know Baldwin's 1962 book, and it, re- it really was—it really was fabulous. I agree. And you know, in if I had had a full year's course instead of a half year, I definitely would have—I would definitely would have used it. O- on the class issue, I completely agree with you that you know, since the time that I taught this class, the uh, the the, 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 gu- the economic golf has has become so much both greater but also sort of more manifest as something that is driving racial disparities as well. So, I, you know, I, I think in a way economic disparity is the most important issue of, of our time, but it doesn't, it shouldn't be pitted against race because these, the, the class division exacerbates the, the, the racial divisions as well. And I think we have to fight on, on both fronts about that.
0: Um, So, uh, my niece is uh, from Iowa, and my husband's Iowan, and and she's white, and so she's sitting on my lap one day, and she looks at my skin, and she's three, and she's like, why are you brown? And so, um, you know, I tried to explain to her, I was like, oh, my mom's from Japan, and my dad's from Nigeria, and I realized this is a stupid thing to say to a three-year-old. So um, I was just wondering, like, how would you imagine teaching a, a child or a curriculum around a place that's homogeneous, like that's predominantly white or predominantly African-American, and how would you, um, yeah, how would you teach it differently? Um, because I think in these places that are homogeneous, it's diff- It's really difficult to get that perspective. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I very much think that any, almost any demographic is a good demographic to teach this material to. I don't think it's only good for the kind of mixed group that I have. The one exception, I would say, is a class that is like 90% white and 10% black. I think that's a bad dynamic. And so I would stay away from that. And if a school had a choice, I think it would be better to have an all-white class than a class with that particular particular dynamic. So I think a lot of the issues that we talked about in my class could very beneficially be taught to an all-black or an all all white group it would certainly be a different experience than in my class but to have the historical background to why you know so so this is an innocent question that your niece asks you there's nothing wrong with asking something like that it's only because people bring so much baggage to it that they might be a little like a little freaked out if you say <laughs> your niece said that so obviously you want to in a certain way normalize that for a a young child you want her to be able to ask a question like that but as she gets older you also want her to understand something about the way that the issue of skin color is charged with this, this whole history and um, I mean my, my children when they were in daycare they had a, a, a teacher who said you have the skin color that's just right for you. It's sort of like David Walker's point and I thought that was like a, a great thing to convey to a two and three year old, you know what I mean, it's like a, a thing that cuts through some bad messages those kids would be having, but obviously it's not giving them the tools to understand why people do put different values on different um, different skin colors. So I guess what I'm saying is it's harder to do the kind of education in the demographics that you asked me in the question, but I, I wouldn't want to say don't do it there, only, only do it in these mixed classes. I mean, there was a certain, you know, certain kind of difference in that, you know, the the black females, so the black females tended to, there, there were usually more of them than black males in the class, and they would sometimes um, talk about like these skin color issues more than the boys did, but not that much more. So, you know, I had that example with Jean Paul who was talked about his bad hair and stuff like that. So I guess... Um, I, I didn't I didn't I I mean in terms of like there were there were, over the years there was occasionally a black student who was hard for me to establish a relationship to and who I felt was resistant to me and they were always girls but there were only 3 of them so I can't really generalize very much so so basically I don't <laughs> I don't really think that I can say that there was a a really striking uh, gender difference in approach to any of the kinds of issues in the course I
1: just want to ask one question if I can put one in I know that young people the sort of millennial generation is often thought to have sort of shifting identities um, and and in different contexts uh, identify in different ways and I'm just wondering if you experience that and if you contrast that with you know, your own generation, if that has political implications for you uh, as you think about what this next generation will do.
2: It might be that because we were talking about race, I saw less of that. Um, I, I know that, you know, like someone like Touré is kind of talks about, you know, people who would be regarded as black taking on a lot of different kinds of identities. I didn't particularly see that in my class. You know, students were dealing with immigrant identities and sort of figuring out how they their racial identity related to their immigrant identity or their ethnic identity which is connected to their immigrant identity. But in terms of this kind of fluidity and not really locating yourself clearly within a specific group, I didn't I didn't really see much of that. The closest I came was to students with mixed parents, you know, parents of, of different races, and those. But they, it wasn't exactly fluidity. It was more like they were two things and not just one thing. So I want to let my mother ask a question.
3: Because
2: <laughs> mom has her hand.
4: <laughs>
2: we'll see. I might take it back.
4: What you had said about. Um, if, if the class was 90 something percent black and just a few white, you
5: wouldn't think that was as ideal as if it yeah. were all
2: white girls. So you mean to explain why? Yeah. Well, I just think that for the minority student, if you're talking about race, it's almost impossible to avoid a kind of hyper visibility of that student where they feel like they're always. <laughs> under the spotlight. People are always either waiting for them to say something or if they say something, they will be worried that people will take that as representing what everyone in their group thinks. I mean, there's just kind of too much baggage on the minority student in that kind of situation. That's why I think it's important to have a, you know, the Supreme Court used this concept of a critical mass, which they didn't examine very much. And I talk about in the book where I felt like um, especially for the black students who were always the most there were more black students than any other group that they they often really took charge of the space in the classroom and it became sort of a classroom for the black students, but it was always temporary in other words there were there were other times that the uh, you know, the community of the classroom had basically everybody in it, but there were certain moments in which the black students kind of took over. Well, they could never do that in the in this kind. Of, and I think it's a very valuable um, educational experience for the black students to have that kind of ownership of this intellectual and academic space, but they couldn't they could never do that when they're just a small minority. Was that a good answer, Mom?. <laughs>
1: Well, a th- big, big thank you to Professor Larry Blum. I can think all of us think the idea of being in a class with him and being able to think about both history and moral philosophy and have the opportunity for discussion would be incredibly valuable. So at least we've had some time tonight with you. And we really appreciate it. Thank you very much.